It's about committing to doing content marketing on a regular basis and then having a partner that is going to help you do that in the best way. Hi, I'm Eric Schwartzman, author of The Digital Pivot, and this is the Earned Media Podcast. My guest today is Laura Smooth. She is the VP Marketing at Verbalio. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I've been doing, um, I usually say something at the intersection of marketing and technology for uh, over 22 years. So um, time has uh, flown by, but it's been um, certainly a really interesting time to be in marketing. And then the last uh, maybe 12 years of that, I've spent doing um, marketing and especially product marketing. So I'm, I'm te technically the VP of product marketing uh, for Verblio, but um, doing marketing for uh, high growth startups. So a lot of them were uh, platforms that helped marketers market, but some of them were not. Uh, but a lot of that time I spent being um, the only the only marketer, the only product marketer for one of a very small bunch. But again, um, everything from uh, VC backed startups to uh, bootstrapped ones and um, and everywhere in between. So it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun and um, a lot of my time is spent just really helping these companies figure out what's the best way to compete and grow. And, and what is your experience in content marketing specifically? Sure. So I have kind of uh, uh, two two aspects to that. The first is just being a marketer. So this has been a critical part of my role is just um, working with content marketing teams, um, building content marketing teams, uh, using content marketing to grow those businesses. Um, I spent about five years in an agency and they were a full service agency um, but I was one of the only, uh, I'd say, non-visual creatives. So um, really starting to see at that time how um, how a lot of these things were really having to come together to create growth. And now uh, within a company that's a content creation marketplace and platform, understanding how do we connect the people that um, are, are seeing the light, that content's really one of the most cost-effective ways you can grow right now. How do we connect them to the right type of content and get them what they need to actually achieve that growth? So, so I found you can often tell a lot about a content marketer by what they read. So what do you like mm -hmm. to read? Well, I, I read a lot. Uh, I read a lot of things. Um, I definitely gravitate towards um, nonfiction um, in terms of, uh, let's see, what do I actually um, like from a content marketing perspective? Um, I read a lot of really nerdy things on pricing and packaging, uh, which doesn't seem directly related to content. But when we think about how do we actually um, like package up what we're selling, package up what other people are selling. So I read a lot, um, follow a lot of what Patrick Campbell, um, the, the well, former CEO of Profit, well, now they've merged, but um, what he writes about um, actually uh, bringing things to market and thinking about how um, how consumers and also B2B companies think about buying things. So a lot of what I read is just how, uh, like consumer psychology, how people think about buying things, um, how we interpret the value of what we buy, which um, especially in content marketing has been really useful to me because content um, doesn't have inherent value, right? It's not worth something just because somebody wrote it. And I think that that's kind of a, a disappointing thing, but really um, a lot around buying psychology and how people interpret the value of what they buy and how they decide to buy more of it. That's where I spend a lot of my reading time. And what about journalism? What, what sort of journalism sources, if you have time, do, do you pay attention to? 
Well, I'm a big, I'm a big New York Times fan, big uh, um, BBC fan. Um, let's see what I'm trying to think if there's anything weirder out there that a lot of people don't consume. Um, yeah, I'd say that's that's a lot of it. Um, I read the Atlantic a lot, um, also the New Yorker. So um, nothing too out of the ordinary, Fine. but um, but I do like uh, to really um, get like a rich historical perspective of some of the issues and some of the things people are talking about, and uh, and have a tendency to go deep and, and fall down rabbit holes. So I like to consume things that have a lot of other places for me to go when I'm reading them. Got it. So so fairly highbrow, shall we say. <laughs> Taste, your journalistic tastes are fairly highbrow. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I, I, I do enjoy the onion also. I don't know if that counts, but. Got it. And then what are your favorite SEO tools? Well, I think, you know, we use, um, we use uh, AHS a lot. Um, we've been working a lot with um, ClearScope to understand some of the, some of the things that they provide, not only with SEO, but especially around content refresh. So, um, so I was the first product marketer at Verblio, and I've started to build out a team. And our focus is not uh, is not like the the end of the go to market process. Like a lot of people think about product marketing as sales sheets and pitch decks and you know messaging on the website. We do all that, um, but a lot of what we do is opportunity assessment, and that includes incubating things and figuring out you know how do we actually take something that is uh, content refreshes aren't new, but they're new ish I think for a lot of people doing content and understand how to productize them, you know, what our platform needs to do, what it needs to provide, um, which ones we should touch, which ones we shouldn't touch, and then how do we actually um, turn that into something real within Verblio, like help the teams operationalize it. And so a lot of my time lately has been around um, how can some of these tools help us understand um, what are the gaps in our content libraries right now, um, how do we fill those gaps uh, and how do we actually give that information to writers? So a lot of my time is spent in, in uh, working with my team to test tools and then see, can we translate those to things we can give writers so that they have a running start? Um, I have a, uh, made a brief stop doing a lot of um, conversation design for a chatbot company. And so I think a lot about um, specifically the roles of humans versus technology and like where they're best paired. And so that's another thing too, is just getting hands-on experience with some of the tools, um, understanding how to uh, analyze Verbally's own content library and how to, as a, as a larger marketing team, uh, make changes and try things. And then seeing how we can, like I said, productize that, um, get it prioritized in our product roadmap, but also even with our services teams, like where can we use tools to add value and, um, you know, make things more cost-effective for our customers, but also, um, you know, our writer experience is hugely important. So again, how can we uh, use some of these tools to give writers that may not um, be experts today um, a, a jumpstart in writing expertly about those topics? Um, when you think about uh, where AI is going in terms of being able to uh, automate content generation and human writers, um, what scares you about that and what excites you about that? Um, I think the thing that probably scares me the most, so I think AI will uh, will have a role in content uh, creation for the, the you know, at least the rest of my life, uh, but I don't think that it's necessarily going to be uh, the single strategist and author for content. So I think a lot of people are saying, how can we cut humans out of the equation and, you know, basically find something cheaper and more scalable? And I don't think it's an or, I think it's an and, right? So for me, it's not so much um, you know, let's not replace the things humans are good at. 
let's replace the things humans are bad at. Um, one thing I think is getting started. You know, I know as um, having done a lot of writing over the years and a lot of content creation myself, um, but just, you know, projects in general, sometimes just uh, getting out of the gate is the hardest part. And um, if you can take a few of those steps and get somebody going, you can give them tremendous, uh, you know, really increase their velocity in terms of uh, creation. Um, I think it has a much bigger role in strategy than it has today. Um, there's some people talking about some really interesting things about, you know, a lot of times we'll use it at the tail end of the process, but it really can be um, leveraged to tell us what we should be writing about, right? Like analyzing, especially if we happen to have large data sets, like using some of that AI and ML to actually suggest to us where things should be going and spark ideas. I think we kind of hold that as precious as humans. Like we're the only ones who can have these ideas, but that's not necessarily true, right? We can get um, a directional assist from AI that I think people aren't really focusing on today. Um, like I mentioned before, I think from a, we spend a lot of time at Verblio thinking about um, in inclusivity, inclusive writing. Um, how can we give our marketplace writers more opportunity by telling them, hey, here's the things you need to hit on and they're good enough that they can go out and research those things, but sometimes without being a subject matter expert, you're, you're going to back off some of those areas because you might not know the whole scope of what you should be talking about. And AI is tremendously good at um, at least giving people, like I said, a running start and covering all those bases. So I think it's all those um, sort of unsexy parts that um, we could be leaning on it for. And then some very basic things. You know, I think um, this isn't strictly AI, but you know, content creation is so much more than just the writing part. And um, there's all these parts of the workflow that are tremendously inefficient, um, really prone to error, and ultimately really expensive that we don't count sometimes because either we're doing them ourselves, we have internal teams doing them, and automation and AI can really um, shortcut a lot of that and give you that scaffolding that you need to scale um, because you're doing it the same way every time, right? You're making sure the right things can happen. You can have uh, ways to flag things that don't look right, that don't require a human watching it all the time. And so a lot of a lot of where we're finding value is um, in, in doing those things and just taking that lift off so that the uh, the actual humans have time and space to be creative and do their best work. For 10 years, I taught this workshop for the Public Relations Society of America called that I that I invented called the Social Media Bootcamp. At the time, I had uh, founded a, a SaaS company called iPressroom, which was for managing online newsrooms, if you're a PR person on a corporate website. And uh, we launched pre-social and social came around and clients started saying, hey, how are you gonna integrate with social? And so kind of by necessity, I sort of took the bus to social media land a few years before everyone else, you know? And I actually was really a social media cheerleader. And I really was out there promoting social media as something fantastic. And I really believe that it was. And, um, you know, fast forward to today and we see sort of the unintended consequences of social media and its ability to polarize not just people, but news sources and uh, its ability to um, get people to try to tap into our emotions and, and um, to try to manipulate us, to try to get clicks and extend session time. And I wonder, you know, having now lived through that and, and realizing, oh, my God, I was a cheerleader for this thing that actually wound up, you know. And I'm not saying that the people who created social media knew it was going there either, but that's kind of where it went. Right. Um, you know, the net net of it has been mostly negative on, on our society. Do you have 
And I wonder now, I look at AI and I'm excited by it. I'm like, wow, this could be great. This could be amazing. But I'm also somewhat fearful, like, oh my God, you know, maybe this isn't going to, you know, and, and I, and I kind of think about um, these customer service experiences where, that I have so frequently now where I transact something online with a company and then I cancel or change. And typically the notifications uh, that they send me don't keep up with those changes. And so then I get frustrated. Oh my God, they don't know. And I have to call again and make sure they got it. It becomes really a hassle. And, and most of the time when this happens, I, and I, I mean, I can think of in the last few weeks, three or four times when this happened and I got the same answer, where most of the time I'll get to the customer service person who will ultimately say, oh, the systems don't talk to each other. We're so sorry. Disregard those uh, messages. We know you're not staying in the hotel. We know you canceled. And, and so, I mean, at least there's still someone to call, which is great, Yeah. which means I can, but I get, I'm worried about like this automated world where we squeeze the humanity out of every transaction <laughs> and there's no one to call. And then basically, you know, you just have to, yeah. I guess, tread water, you know, trying to fix things with a credit card company or something after the date. I mean, those are the fears I have of AI because whether it's ready or not, it is obviously there's a financial incentive for companies to deploy it. Um, but then, you know, obviously consumers are left holding the bag. So I wonder if you, if you could, could kind of parlay that over to content marketing, right? If we start in, because everyone's out there saying, oh, we've got AI, we've got AI. Right. It's, it's a marketing buzzword. Um, if the AI people come into content marketing and start saying, hey, you know, we're going to handle this all for you. What are, what, what are some of the dangers of that type of, of a scenario? Well, I think, you know, again, um, I don't know why I keep bringing it back to my pricing and packaging bent, but um, this idea that uh, I became pretty obsessed, you know, in recent years with this idea about um, really focusing, even when you're using um, doing value-based pricing, really focusing on value to the customer, right? And so if we think about, you know, in, in content, ultimately, you're looking to provide value to a reader, reader whether that's, you know, a new idea, um, whether it's a unique perspective, any of those things. And so I think that, that mentality also uh, like always has to be front and center. And I don't think you ever lose by putting that mentality front and center saying genuinely, you know, if I were, and I think about this a lot, even with our own content, you know, when I try and decide, well, where's the line, you know, what is, what is high enough quality, right? We've been, we've spent the past two quarters really trying to um, reverse engineer and deconstruct quality, figure out what is objective, what is subjective. Um, and I think in the beginning, we really, you know, a lot of us, thought, well, there's no way to really do that. It's all subjective. Uh, but it's really not, right? I think actually going into the weeds, into the depths of this and saying, um, what really provides value to a reader? Or, you know, even in our customer's perspective, like what what are they trying to do with the content, whether they're a, a small plumber or whether they're a large VC-backed company trying to really uh, use content as, as their primary acquisition strategy? Um, you know, what do they have to get in order for it to be valuable, right? And it's not just something written, right? Us giving them a written piece of content isn't necessarily value. And so I think really trying to always say, you know, at any moment in time, and that that unfortunately in content marketing is a it's kind of a shapeshifter, it constantly changes, accepting that and really demanding um, any technology we're using, anything we're providing, even if it's human provided, is this providing the value that they need for the objective that they came to us for? Um, and being really candid with uh, with yourself about whether or not that's true and whether or not it's still true, 
Um, and then saying when we incorporate tools, um, let's put it in those, especially AI and other places, let's put it in those places that don't actually add value, right? It's stuff you have to do to make content marketing happen, but it doesn't actually provide value. Use AI all over the place for those things, right? But the unique perspective um, you know, bringing new information to folks when there may be a sea of other pieces of information like it out there. Um, I think those are things that humans are uniquely good at, right? Like really discerning what is valuable as a reader to read. And even if it is an article about winterizing your pipes, or if it's something, you know, much more, uh, much more interesting or different, um, making that the litmus test or making that the standard by which we judge uh, all of our aggregate actions, whether they be human or machine. We are talking to Laura Smoos. She is the VP of Product Marketing at Verblio. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the difference between good and great content. We're here with Laura Smoos. She is the VP of Product Marketing at Verblio. Laura, what is the difference between good and great content? Well, I think, you know, as a, as a marketer, selfishly, I'd say um, causing people to take that next right action, right? Great content inspires people to act. And acting, in some cases, might be thinking differently. It might be changing your consideration set. It's not always buying, or it's not always buying that day. Um, but it means you walk away from it different than you entered. And I think so much of the content you were, we were talking earlier about what I like to read, I'll be honest, I'm disappointed in a lot, a lot of the, even the sort of the highbrow sources I read today because um, they seem rushed. There are a lot of errors um, and not everybody feels the same way about uh, what those errors mean, but I don't love them. You know, I love to see a, a, a perfectly written piece of content. And when there are errors, the, the trust factor goes down for me. I start to say, well, if this is small mistake is being made here, what else is not right about this? And so I think, you know, um, great content starts with things just being correct. And correct can mean a certain style guide. It can mean uh, it's what I asked for. You know, I gave you the information to make this right. Did you consume it? And did the final piece reflect that? It doesn't mean perfect, uh, but it does mean that, um, you know, as a customer, I feel you really understand the direction that I gave you. Now, the direction writers are given is not always great. Um, so, you know, certainly uh, we think a lot about how do we provide ways to make sure you're giving the best type of direction. But I ultimately think um, a reader should walk away, like I said, with um, some information, some perspective, or maybe it's even validation, um, but a different angle than they had before. And it could be a really unsexy topic or it could be something really interesting and new. That's what it should provide because, you know, we are also, we're all, uh, inundated with media of all sorts. If you're taking your time, which you can't make more of to read it, you should be better than you were when you came. I um, edit a uh, blog about wine for a client. I have a winery in Sonoma. And uh, this week I attended the Wine Writers Symposium, uh, which is held by uh, Meadowood in Napa Valley. And uh, one of the topics was sort of the economics of good content. And, um, you know, folks sort of at the bottom making, making the least amount were making, you know, 50 cents to a dollar a word. And then, you know, other folks are on staff. And the ones who are on staff are kind of in a good, better position because they can actually pursue a story idea that if it doesn't pan out, it's okay. They can drop it and move on to the next thing. They're not paid by the widget, you know? 
Whereas if you think about like going to like an online writer marketplace and connecting with a writer, you know, on the one hand, you know, you want sort of this great new content. You, you need it to be great because if it's just me to content, it's not going to serve its purpose. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, you know, you, you need a writer who's has the enough, enough revenue in the job to commit their time and energy to write a good piece of content and, and be able to be paid well for it. And you think about like some of what, you know, the, what the rates are and some of the, you know, not just Verblio, but the other ones as well. I mean, the, the writers are making so little, you know, is, does that work? How do you, in that environment, get someone to give you enough of their discretionary attention to really consider the content and try to come out with a new idea? Absolutely. I mean, this is a great question. This is something that I, um, an area of uh, my role that I love spending time on is is really thinking about even even writer pay or writer compensation as a product for writers. You know, what what are we offering them and what really motivates people? Um, I think that something that I've been incredibly interested in is um, at least conceptually, maybe not functionally yet, but conceptually moving away from the price per word model or getting people away from price per word thinking. And again, thinking about value, right? Because you could have a luxury product description that is very short, right? But for that particular brand, those words being exactly right and exactly in their brand voice is incredibly important, right? And so the, that, that model starts to break down right away when you think about examples like that or even social, social media marketing is another great example. The price per word model um, it doesn't work in the same way that it used to. And so I really think um, the first thing is, you know, understanding what motivates writers. Uh, it's not always um, transactional, right? We, we need to think beyond just, um, I write one piece, you pay me one thumb. Um, we want to move more from transactional to relational, to relationships that work for us and work for our writers. And sometimes that means things like uh, we have a we have a very good partner in the space. They don't do content creation, but they do something adjacent. And they actually polled a lot of their um, the people that they work, the freelancers they work with. Um, and it wasn't uh, increasing pay that increased retention for them. It was increasing sort of consistency of worker reliability, guaranteeing work. So as a, um, and having done, uh, you know, off and on consulting for many years, chasing down clients is miserable, getting paid by clients is miserable, having paid 1099 employees that's miserable. Um, that's a lot of work that is not fun. I don't think for anyone normal. Uh, and so, you know, can you know, we our platform removes that, but can we go a step further and say, let's think about new ways to structure the relationship? Where again, it's not so transactional. Um, so we can say, instead of you, freelance writer, having to think about the next twenty clients you're going to work with, can we, since we trust you and we've seen your work, can we guarantee you an amount of work that's going to Uh, create some room and some space in your life that has value to you. Um, And so again, it's, it's not just thinking of this as being transactional. And I think that's one of the differences about, you know, how we think about things. It's thinking, you know, what actually creates the stress for a freelance writer. It's not always the writing, you know, a lot of times the management of all these other things. So if we can take that off their minds you know, does that give them more room to be more eager to really deeply research this or come up with a really unique angle or become attached, again, not so much uh, to that one single piece, but to the idea of um, maybe the customer they're writing for, or the relationship with the platform or their role in our community. And so I think, you know, again, it's a little scary to to talk about something other than the price for word model 
But I think in reality, it fulfills a lot of those human needs much more and actually might get the business um, some more flexibility in pay. You know, because when we think about content, you have everything from the cheapest content mill to, you know, bespoke uh, blog pieces that someone might pay, you know, $1,000 to have ghostwritten. And so it's very hard for a customer to really suss out, well, what is this worth? Um, so I think in that sense, it's really saying, you know, understanding the human needs of the person writing the content and then saying, how can we creatively match that with different vehicles to pay them, um, different ways to charge our customers that um, are kind of like a triple bottom line for all parties. If you go with some sort of a subscription model where the uh, customer commits to a certain number of pieces per month to Verblio, that doesn't necessarily um, go through to the writer because you guys are a platform and you could use different writers. So how, how would that model benefit a writer? I mean, you think it's almost like content arbitrage because if, <laughs> if on the bottom of the scale, um, freelance writers who are writing uh, for publications are making 50 cents, and at the top of the scale for most of the writing platforms is maybe a quarter, 20 cents, and there are writers working for eight, eight cents a word, I mean, how do those writers, even with all the benefits of not having to deal with the headache of administration, um, which you insulate them from, set their table at eight cents a word? How do, I mean, and, and I, I don't want to put you on the spot because there is no answer. It's a rhetorical question. Uh, but I, I want to share this with you. Um, my nephew uh, is late 20s, and he was working for a really cool... Um, I would say mid-level SaaS company as a customer success person. Okay. And he had been with them before the pandemic and he's working with them. He's working with them and he's looking around, he's looking at his pay and he became part of the great resignation. He mm -hmm. was one of the young guys, you know what, screw this, I can do better. And so he left them and he's entertaining offers from other companies. But like I was talking to him the other day, I'm like, well, that looks good. Why don't you take that? It's like, you know what? They don't want to pay me enough. Why should I give them my life and my best years so that they can take advantage of me? I don't want to do that anymore, you know? And I wonder this great resignation that everyone's talking about, what is the impact of the great resignation on the seller side of online marketplaces like Verblia? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a wonderful question. And I would say, you know, I have a, a um, maybe not a unique perspective, but um, I've just talking about this with someone earlier today, I have the uh, benefit or curse of not being as smart as he uh, is early in my career and working 80 hours a week and, you know, being taken advantage of by companies. And so I understand uh, why some of um, these people earlier in their, their careers are really scrutinizing this and saying, hey, uh, we're wise to the fact that the employer's not necessarily working in my best interest. And that it's sort of on me to make sure that I'm maximizing the value of the things I do for the life that I want. And so I think that, um, you know, from, from our perspective, uh, that's kind of a great, uh, it's, it's a great thing that's happening because you have these people who are, I would say practitioners, you know, in a certain space, you know, customer success, one area who uh, who have hands on experience, who have knowledge uh, and who may also be very strong writers who would have never considered doing something like that before. They can do something like this um, on the side 
as little or as much as they want. And then the ones that are really um, decide they're passionate specifically about writing full time, uh, figure out how to make the system work to allow them to do that. Right. Um, and we are simultaneously on Burglio's side, kind of rebooting and rethinking. Well, we used to have these levels and they had to do with, you know, the number of pieces you'd written and how many were purchased. And then word length went up and you got access to better jobs. Um, but we're, we're right now, I won't say blowing that up, but just um, going back to the drawing board and saying, well, what, how should somebody progress through the levels and what does somebody need to demonstrate? And maybe it's not just, um, you know, uh, you know, that they've demonstrated success with our customers, but maybe they have some real world experience that actually, um, I won't say will help them jump the line, but where we can put them in a different bucket, right? We can give them access to different types of work. So they don't have to do some of the things that aren't as fun, uh, it, you know, early on in order to get access to things that might actually be a really good match for them. So I think one thing is just constantly looking at the way you're doing things and saying, does this make sense for the type of people we're trying to attract? Um, we're looking a lot at things like expert recruitment. Well, yeah, somebody's not going to jump through all of the hoops that um, that somebody who's dedicated to being a full-time freelance writer might, um, but that doesn't mean that they can't find a place in our platform, and it doesn't mean that we won't benefit from them doing work for us. So I think it is really just having a very flexible um, a flexible mentality about it, uh, but uh, accepting that this content marketing in particular, we don't have the luxury of um, deciding when we want to change, right? The market uh, changes around us, the algorithms change around us. And so we have to make that a constant part of what we're evaluating. And then I think that from the technology and product perspective, um, saying let's build flexible, <laughs> Let's build a flexible platform. You know, right now we've um, moved towards adding a lot more flexibility to our credit. So when people do subscribe, it's not about having to use the same amount of content every month. It's about committing to doing content marketing on a regular basis and then having a partner that is going to help you do that in the best way um, and bring their knowledge to you. So I think it's the same thing on the, um, you know, on the great resignation side, it's like there's this huge influx of people who have that subject matter expertise that would be really hard to get. And maybe in the old world, they would have been so committed to those jobs that it wouldn't have been worth their time to think about doing something else. But I think um, people are saying flexibility is important to me. Um, I'm not going to rely on one employer for, you know, all of, put all my eggs in that basket because I know that overnight I could be fired on a Zoom call. It's saying, cool, um, we're happy to have you as little or as much as you want, um, as long as we can pair you and you can be um, reliable and write well and work well with customers like that. You, there's a place for you here. We're talking to Laura Smoos. She is the Vice President of Product Marketing at Verblio. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what makes Verblio different. Stay with us. Our guest today is Laura Smoose. She is the Vice President of Product Marketing at Verblio, uh, an online marketplace for outsourcing uh, content marketing to a marketplace of writers. And um, you know, there are other services like this uh, that have sort of popped up over the years. It's become a somewhat competitive space, although still na very nascent. Uh, still, I would say probably mostly first movers in this area right now. And I'd be curious to know, Laura, what makes Verblio different from the other online marketplaces for matching writers with clients? 
Well, I think um, the first, it's an excellent question, right? Because people have so many options. And I would, I would agree with you, a lot of people don't even know that a specialized marketplace exists to do something like this. So I do think we're early, but it is very competitive. I mean, I think the first is um, we really do feel that there will forever, um, for the remainder of our existence, always be a role for humans, right? The marketplace, the human writers that are in it are um, basically what, what fuels our business. And so... Um, we embrace that, but we also embrace the technology side. Um, and that means uh, investing heavily in building a platform, uh, building a writer experience that works for writers, investing in both the customer and writer experience. And um, again, not trying to, to fight and say, no, humans are always going to be necessary. AI I will never replace them or go the other direction and say, you know, how many corners can we cut by using AI? We're saying, how do we understand the best of both? And how can we actually leverage AI to make being a human writing in our marketplace a better experience, which ultimately will help our customers. So I think it's just, you know, having a lot of experience tinkering with different, uh, you know, balances between human and machine and um, being committed to doing that forever. Um, so no, no, set it and forget it from that perspective. Um, so that's one piece. You know, I do think, you know, we have our foundation in journalism. So um, quality was always central to who we were. And we didn't want to just sell people content. We wanted to sell people content that would help them rank, that would generate leads that, um, like I was um, mentioning earlier, you know, we're seeing these people use it as the customer acquisition tool, as their go-to-market tool, invest incredibly heavily, um, which, by the way, I think is super smart. Uh, my my last stop was in uh, was in ad tech, and um, there's a lot of money wasted in, in paid advertising. So I think moving that uh, and saying, you know, how can we use content marketing as an acquisition tool? What does that mean? How do we need to behave differently to do that? Um, I think we love customers like that because we have both of those aspects, you know, a human aspect that can really pr uh, protect the brand and the subject matter, which, you know, sort of what I would say the, um, I don't say low end, but the people that are more typically characterized as content mills don't necessarily have as much focus on that. Um, but we also know that we're not trying to help people get to one one shining piece of content, right? We know they need a large content library to scale. Um, we know that they need to be refreshing that library. And so um, we sort of help people navigate the, the waters as the algorithms change, as what's necessary to actually um, gain ground with content marketing changes. Uh, we're committed to working with people to, to give them all that um, insight that would be incredibly hard to do on your own. Um, and I would also say, you know, having been um, within a lot of different marketing teams, even if you have a stellar internal team, that doesn't mean they can flex in all directions, right? Not everyone's great at writing all things. And so I think the other thing that we provide is a way to um, round out or augment your content marketing team um, so that you can hit in all the areas you need to hit in. Um, that that would be very difficult to do with one or two people, right? Or even 10 people because they're still individuals. So as um, someone who uses all the, well, at least the ones I know of, I use several uh, online writer marketplaces to uh, outsource and scale, you know, for, for clients because, you know, there's only one of me and I don't scale too well. Right. So I need help. Um, but the one big difference that I noticed with Verblio from all the others is it's not a marketplace where you can actually look for writers and hire writers. Um, you, instead, you post briefs and writers send you uh, um, stories on spec without, so they're, they're speculating that you'll buy it and basically investing their time without any guarantee of getting paid. 
And um, I mean, I, I, I haven't been using it that long, but I mean, I wouldn't say that that experience has improved the quality of writing I get on Verblio over the other ones. Um, so what, talk to us a little bit about the thinking behind that. Like, why not let someone go after a writer that they want uh, with a portfolio and actually be sort of the matchmaking service? Why actually remove uh, visibility to the sell side and just let that kind of percolate up like that? Also, aren't isn't the sell side concerned about posting these briefs and not getting paid? Sure. That's a wonderful question. Um, and I personally, I think having had an agency background, I don't love using the term on spec, though functionally that is how it works. Um, but I would say is, you know, the, the premise that we were going for is number one, as a customer, you'll only pay for content you like. We're not going to make you pay for content you don't like. Um, and if, and even if it's just not, not your jam, not the right fit for you, nothing to do with the writer, um, that our, our platform and our system and our marketplace exists to make sure that another one will be there in its place that you'll like better, right? So over time, the system will learn uh, what you like and that matchmaking will happen um, faster and better and more accurately with the benefit of technology. So that's one piece of it. Um, and I think on the writer's side, the original premise was um, because it is, uh, because you're not getting paid unless someone purchases your work, that you are incentivized to pick things that you're going to love writing and uh, and I would say knock out of the park, right? Um, it doesn't mean that it is your opus, that it's the best thing you've ever written, but it should be something that you're really proud to put your name on. And so um, that was the, the founding belief and the reason why the system works the way that it does. Um, definitely over time, we've learned like there are tweaks that need to be made to that, right? There are cases where uh, customers love the writers that they're working with and don't want to go back to the open marketplace. And that's why we have uh, preferred writers and that's why we have writer pools, especially for some of our larger enterprise customers that um, we know have this really high volume, these really tight timeframes. We want to make sure that those people are kept really close and we have entire teams of people that work with our platform to make sure that that happens. Um, but we also know that um, the customers we're really, we're really uh, best suited for are the ones looking to scale, right? So they're not trying to find one writer that can write for them one time or 10 times. They're looking to find um, a consistent way to produce and increase uh, the amount of content they're producing, but maintain the quality. And that's why we have the marketplace, right? That's why we don't um, limit people to just reaching out directly to somebody they think might be the best fit. We want them to have that discoverability, right? That um, chance for new writers to find them um, that doesn't put the work on the customer to go after them in a sea of what, thousands, many thousands that are in our marketplace. And so um, again, I think that's the original concept. And I think the heart of it is still there. However, um, we are looking at a lot of things to try and make sure that um, at the very least writers are getting prompt feedback and a decision one way or the other so they can move on and plan their, their income, um, but also um, gathering more information from writers, knowing more about them. Uh, we're uh, on the cusp of doing a lot of, uh, a lot of product work to really make sure that um, not only are those briefs coming in, much sharper and much, uh, you know, which with uh, a much better idea for writers of what they're walking into, but also um, is that information getting presented to writers and the writer experience in a way that's going to allow them to nail it and get that work purchased. So I think, like I said, the philosophy behind it is still the same, um, that we want people to go after things that they're going to love doing. And then that's what, you know, makes the system work, um, but that it does need change over time because we uh, absolutely don't want customers abusing writers, right? And just uh, taking a bunch of submissions and 
you know, um, declining most of them or all of them, or, or in many cases, not doing anything, right? Um, we want the, that trust to be maintained, and that's um, really central to it working at all. So, um, you know, I'm always a little uh, uh, reticent to commit too much original content creation into a SaaS app because if it's in a browser and the browser refreshes, I could lose my content. You know, and you, this happens to us all in different applications. So some of us have learned, okay, write it in a notepad and then move it over when you're ready. Uh, you know, the classic thing, I guess, would be, um, you know, applying to some, on a, some HR yeah. site. You know, you get it all in there and it refreshes and it's gone. You have to go over again. Um, you know, unless it's Google Docs, I'm always nervous about committing too much brain power um, writing into a web app because I don't want to lose it. And, um, you know, I can say my biggest pet peeve with not just Verblio, but several of the other online uh, writer marketplaces as well, is um, the, the, uh, you're forced to use, uh, you're forced to collaborate with writers using a system that is um, not best of breed. You know, it's not on, on the class mm -hmm. with the Google Docs. Um, so there are some out there that actually integrate Google Docs that you use it. Obviously, who can compete? I mean, what what even well-funded uh, tech startup can compete with Google's army of, of engineers? And so, you know, I think back to a moment when I was um, developing iPress Room and we had signed Target as a, as a client. And it was, uh, you know, after a few drinks at the bar and with the CTO and they sort of let their armor down. And I remember asking them, you know, God, you guys are Target. Why'd you hire us? We're just a little company and we're just starting. And he said, um, you know, we work on razor thin margins and uh, that's what we're all about. Buying and selling on razor thin margins. We don't have the IT resources, the engineers in-house to focus on that, even if we just did that. So we basically, anything else we outsource and we take all internal IT resources and focus it on our core competency. And boy, I, I heard that message so loud and clear and stuck with me ever since this, um, gosh, I don't want to date myself, but it's over 10 years ago. Um, and then you look at like, you know, these services like yours, like Verblio, who are doing this wonderful job creating these marketplaces where the real value is connecting the buyer and the seller, not providing a word processing, you know, right. system where you can collaborate. Yet you're locked into these systems that don't allow you to track changes. They don't allow you, allow you to do strike through. There's, I mean, it's just, and you're not alone. I'm not picking on you. Everybody's like this, and except for one. And I wonder, and they don't have as many writers. So, I mean, every no, no, nothing's perfect out there. So I wonder, you know, you obviously, you know, have been down the road before. You've been at a lot of tech startups. You probably, this is not any news to you, what I'm saying. Talk to me about your guys' product strategy around this idea of keeping it all in the platform instead of integrating with best of breed? Sure, absolutely. This is a wonderful question. And I think, you know, another big part of, of my job in product marketing and, and it's something I've really loved at Verblio is that the product and engineering teams really want to have uh, a lot of input from product marketing into product strategy, which is awesome. And it selfishly is great for me. Uh, and this is one area where we have a lot of discussion because I'm also a user of our platform, right? I have... Um, expectations and sometimes gripes uh, and other things as well that um, that would be very similar to our customers. So I, I think there's, you know, um, 
we've been around a long time, well over a decade. So I think, you know, those things weren't available to us when we started down that road, right? So it's not like if we were to start today, would that be part of, you know, would, would something like a Google Docs be inherent to our platform? Perhaps, hard to say. Um, but from where we are now, I think there's a couple different ways we're looking at it. I think one is, you know, we are open to integrating and using other technologies. I do think we have some of the uh, maybe reservations that platforms will have, which is, okay, if this outside vendor changes, goes in a direction we hate, has a vulnerability we don't control, all of those things, and, and you know, our bread and butter, every single document that's being written is, is passing through it, what happens and are we prepared for that? I think that's one piece of it is trying to maintain a little bit of um, control, security, stability, and, and actually say. But, but isn't the isn't the bread and butter the transaction, the, the the financial transaction? Isn't that really where the opportunity is? I mean, why does having access to old stuff that has been procured and sold matter? I mean, I think a large piece of it is just also um, the fact that uh, you know who who retains the who retains the rights to the actual content itself and things like that, and making sure that we have high security standards and that, you know, people are, um, the content that they pay for is theirs, that people aren't selling it somewhere else and all of that. And I think we we can maintain a little more of that control cleanly having it uh, in-house. Um, but I will say that we um, are, we have a white label platform for agencies that has um, quite a bit more robust uh, editing uh, functionality and tracking. And then we also do work with Google Docs um, through automation and integration uh, for some of our customers who only want to work at Google Docs and only want their things delivered through Google Docs. Um, I have been involved in many large scale uh, accounts hands-on uh, actually seeing that automation and working with it. So um, I don't know if it's something that we're moving towards in terms of an actual integration, but I think in terms of being very clear on the fact that Google Docs has nailed version um, version control commenting, lots of other aspects of that um, word processing capability, uh, we would definitely be looking towards them as the standard or like the uh, the expectation that our customers would be having, and we're very aware that we have some gaps. And so we're trying to figure out what's the best way to quickly close those, you know, preserve uh, preserve the experience and preserve the integrity of our platform. Cool. So what haven't I asked you that you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, I think, uh, you know, one, one question I've mentioned a few times before, but something that we're um, very keen on is, you know, what what is um, what should we be advising people in terms of content refresh? Um, how do we help people have a great refresh strategy without cannibalizing new content creation? Um, uh, some things like that. So it's not just about uh, creating new content, but about making sure that your library as a whole is, is achieving for you what you're looking for. Um, we are very keenly looking at some of the things around um, EAT and uh, how that is going to, is already, um, but will impact uh, everyone's perception of quality. So, um, you know, our, our customers' expectations are constantly changing, but also, you know, what they need to do and be producing to actually um, rank or, you know, establish um, credibility is, is going, the bar keeps getting higher. So we're trying to um, figure out what pieces of that do we need to incorporate today and for whom and how do we stay ahead of that? So I think that's one big thing is, you know, how do you, uh, we can't keep doing the same thing we're doing and expect that in a year or two years, it's going to work as well for us. So, you know, where do we make those bets right now and how do we try and bring our customers along in 
um, knowing what they'll need in order to make, like I said, their content investment work for them in the way they expect. That's a big one. You know, I think about all these um, content marketing blogs that are powered by AI that are just gibberish and they're trying to game the algorithm and, you know, maybe they can do it in some niche category where, there's, where it's not too competitive. But one of the things that's similar about all those blogs is the author. It's usually by admin. And if I was, you know, doing the Google algorithm and I was looking at eat and I was looking at page quality, yeah. uh, I mean, whether or not there was an author, boy, that would sure make a difference. And uh, that's a challenge, obviously, with, with your platform because it's not easy to attribute writers. It can be done. There's mm -hmm. a lot of manual work to make it happen. It's not as easy as just checking a button and the guy's name's going to, or girl's name's going to be on the post and you're going to be able to have a, a, a user account on the WordPress blog and ready to go. You know, it's a lot of back and forth with the rep. And, you know, honestly, the reason you go to a service like Verbalio is because you don't want to deal with that. Um, just a parting thought, you know, if you're listening to this and you're doing content marketing and your biggest challenge is that you don't have a way to get content written. I mean, Verblio is definitely worth a try. Um, you know, you don't have to, it's not a lot of money. Get in there, give it a try. Easy to try. I would definitely recommend trying it. I mean, I, I think if we're in content marketing, these are the type of services that are going to help us grow. Um, I can tell you, these are the types of services that help me um, meet my clients' needs without having to, you know, maintain a big payroll, which obviously I can't do if I'm project based. Right. So uh, I would definitely recommend you give it a try. Uh, uh, Laura Smoos, VP of Product Marketing at Verblio. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. Influence through Earn Media, get the Digital Pivot audiobook at digitalpivotbook.com.